3: Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 102 of the coronavirus crisis, the Federal Reserve rides to the rescue again as stocks have their best week since Gerald Ford became
4: president. The Fed takes unprecedented action.
1: Pump about 23 trillion dollars into the economy
4: while stocks have their best week in decades as the bell goes we are higher
0: about a full 12 percent in just one week
4: but warnings persist about what the other side looks like
0: no one should think the government can wave a wand and the economy is like It was before this happened.
4: As a record number of Americans find themselves out of work.
0: 6,606,000
4: are the initial claims. And the pain on Main Street grows.
5: I decided to give up my job and give up my lease and retire by the end of this month.
4: This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner.
5: It
3: is good to have you with us on this Thursday night. Stocks rose solidly again today on Wall Street as the Federal Reserve outlined more programs to support the economy. Today, the Dow rising 285 points. The S&P 500 was up about one and a half percent. But check out these numbers. For the week, the Dow was up almost 13 percent for one of its best weeks on record. The S&P 500 rising 12 percent, its biggest weekly gain since 1974. And the Nasdaq's 10 and a half percent rise its best since 2009. How about the small cap Russell 2000? Its best week ever. Oil didn't participate, though, falling 9% as conflicting reports over a production cut weighed on prices there. But late in the day, it was confirmed that OPEC and its allies agreed to a 10 million barrel per day cut. For more on today's $2 trillion Fed action, let's bring in Steve Leesman. Steve, it's good to see you this evening. We've used the word historic, many times during this crisis and it's the word we're going to use again tonight because that's what the fed did earlier today
1: yeah scott i would add uh, unprecedented extraordinary actions by the federal reserve to the word historic Uh, the fed announcing programs worth about 2.3 trillion dollars of lending into the economy let me go through some of the details here it is announcing a 600 billion dollars of loans to in a Main Street lending facility, something it has never done, loaning to individual businesses, $850 billion in corporate credit, including buying high yield, that is junk bond debt, something it has never done. Ad- additionally, $500 billion in loans to states and municipalities, it has never before loaned against municipal bonds. Uh, let's, we, Fed Chair Jay Powell t- speaking today, saying that, explaining why. The Fed is taking these actions it has never done before.
6: People are undertaking these sacrifices for the common good. We need to make them whole. To the extent we have the ability to make them whole, we should be doing that as a society. They didn't cause this. Their business isn't closed because of anything they did wrong. They didn't lose their job because of anything they did wrong. This is what the great fiscal power of the United States is for, is to protect these people.
1: Let's talk about these main street lending programs. It's kind of complicated, but let me walk you through what we know about how these loans are going to work. They're four-year loans. They're open to companies with ten thousand dollars or fewer ten thousand or fewer workers and revenues of less than two and a half billion dollars. Mostly these are gonna be for mid-sized companies. So let's In a very, very loose way, I want to walk you through how the taxpayer is financing these loans. Let's take a typical million-dollar loan. That is the minimum size, at least initially. The bank will finance $50,000 of it. The Treasury effectively finances $105,000. That's the extent to which the taxpayer is on the hook. It's more complicated than that, but this is a simple version. And the Fed will provide $845,000 of the rest of the financing for that loan. You can see they could lever up that taxpayer money into much more money uh, at the end. And Fed Chair Jay Powell was asked, Hey, is there any limit to this? He said, No. Within legal limits of what the Fed can do, Scott, they can keep going. There's more money from the Congress to do this, and the Fed sounds like it's going to be doing more here. Amazing
3: story, Steve. Thank you. That's our Steve Leisman covering the Fed in this historic and unprecedented action for us today. Let's bring in Anastasia Amoroso, head of cross-asset thematic strategy with J.P. Morgan Private Bank. And Steve Grasso is director of institutional sales and a fast money trader. Good to see you both. Anastasia, I'll begin with you first. So we have this best week since the 70s on the same day that employment numbers are horrific. Does this make any sense to you?
7: It does make some sense, and the reason for that is we really had at least three game changers that happened this week to offset the negativity of the numbers of initial jobless claims. And those game changers are massive monetary policy support massive fiscal policy support. And by the way, the two of them, the combination, how it works together is very potent. And then we finally got some better news on the COVID infection front as well. So it is no wonder that the market is shaking off some of the bad news from payrolls. So to just emphasize the point that Steve made, this the monetary policy unveiled by the Fed, especially today, is truly unprecedented. And what the objective of that, I think, really was is to make sure that nobody slips through the cracks to the extent possible. And one of the vulnerable places that the market's worried about is the high-yield market and what could happen to the defaults there. But because there is now up to $600 billion of loans that will be available to these mid-sized businesses, that captures a lot of what are high-yield issuers and the leveraged loan issuers. So that's, that was a very game-changing aspect. And no wonder high-yield rallied very strongly on the market uh, t- today, rather. And then you combine this with the fiscal side. You know, we know that the CARES package is massive, $2 trillion, but you couple that with the Fed leverage, and you're already starting to see the impact of that. In full, they could probably add another $4 trillion to the stimulus that is the CARES Act of, of $2 trillion. And so we saw $2.3 trillion of that already added today. Mm-hmm. So that's how I explain um, the, this rally that we had. And I think there's some durable, sustainable features to it. And chances are we have seen uh, the low for this particular crisis.
3: So, Steve Grasso, did the Fed, mm-hmm. as Anastasia says take a retest off the table today?
6: I I think the Fed definitely took a retest off the table for today. And I think it's going to be very hard to uh, test those lows, Scott, in the next 30 to 45 to 60 days. But to Anastasia's point, uh, can you hear me okay? I can, yep. Go ahead. Okay, so to, to Anastasia's point, If the coronavirus numbers didn't start to get better, they can do all the bailouts in the world and it wouldn't matter. So it was a confluence of events that the Fed really bailed out the junk bond market, which that was the biggest fear that that was going to overlay on the rest of the economy, the banks. And if you look back to 0809. The Fed and everyone else in this country went to school on that. That's emboldened them to take the actions that they're taking now. So back then, it's, it was too big to fail. Now it's nobody will fail. So it, we're rewarding companies that went into this week and are coming out weak and won't be allowed to fail. And the stronger companies will be aided because they will put up numbers that are satisfactory. No one's going to have any earnings. So we're not nervous about economic data, earnings at this point. That day will come. So to your original question, for the next 30 to 60 days, a retest seems unlikely. But once everyone goes back to work and we start to see those infection rates and deaths uh, probably don't plateau and rise again, that's when you're susceptible to the retest.
3: Anastasia, can we believe what we've seen out of the Russell 2000? The the rebound has been... Quite dramatic. These are the smaller companies in this country, the ones who may be more susceptible to problems because of the virus and the shutdown
7: sense that those would be the companies that rallied the most today and actually rallied the most this week. Because if you think about, again, what the confluence of policy does, it supports the weakest links. And that's exactly who's been helped uh, by those policies today. So if you believe that the activity from this point forward is going to improve, then I think absolutely you can believe in the rally that we're seeing in the Russell 2000. If we start to shift our mentality from late cycle, which was so last year or you know a few, few years ago, to now this is the beginning of the new cycle. So you look for things that perform well when you're recovering from low levels of activity. It tends to be small caps, tends to be value, tends to be cyclicals. Now, having said that, I think it's probably a little bit too early to step into some of those places, but we have to start thinking about two types of opportunities. You know, on the one hand, well, two or three types of opportunities, but on the one hand, you've got these left behind companies, some of them are small caps, but also things like airlines and uh, transportation methods and vacation places and all these COVID underperformers. Mm -hmm. By the way, they're some of the best performing companies this week. I think there's more catching up uh, of those companies to do as eventually we go back to work and we go back to life. That's the first thing. The second thing, we do have to think about the long-term beneficiary of this, which are all companies that were already well-liked, but a lot of the artificial intelligence players are at the forefront here, helping us deal with this issue. And this could be AI companies that are helping us forecast the spread of the virus. These can be robotics companies that are helping us disinfect the services, These can be the companies that are actually helping us accelerate the pace of innovation in healthcare as they apply AI uh, to to finding, let's say, the shape of the spike protein. So you definitely look at that. And then the last thing I would mention, which perhaps should be at the top of the list, is credit. Given the intense support that we're getting from the policymakers, investment grade, high yield preferreds would be the top of the list here for me.
3: Good to have you both with us tonight, Anastasia. Steve. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Bill Gates has been working to find a vaccine for the coronavirus.
0: Without it, he says, the U.S. economy cannot get back to normal. No one should think the government can wave a wand and all of a sudden, you know, the economy is anything like it was before this happened. That awaits either a miracle therapeutic that has an over 95 percent cure rate or broad usage of the vaccine what opening up looks like, which is, you know, at the earliest for the U.S., I would say at the end of May. But the discussion of which activities bring societal value and how much risk of rebound they bring, that's, you know, something everybody should participate in. Picking which of the many vaccine efforts it's worth putting a lot of money behind and building that manufacturing in parallel with the uh, safety and efficacy work, which is very difficult to do, you know, probably will take about 18 months uh, before we can get uh, to a significant level. Manufactured antibodies are using the blood of recovered uh, patients in order to help treat people who are just getting sick. Those, uh, there's enough of them that in aggregate, I'd say it's very likely we'll have uh, those interventions in the four to six month time frame. But how much that'll cut the death rate and these overloads Uh, you know, is still a bit uncertain. And that was Bill Gates. Let's
3: turn now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you tonight. Thanks. We are at the end, or coming to the end of, of yet another week, and we seem to be ending on a bit of a good note, more good numbers coming out of New York. What does it tell us about where we are in this crisis? Well, look. that's
8: true. The models are improving. The steps that we've taken to try to reduce the spread of the virus are having its intended effect. As brutal as those measures were in terms of confining people to their homes and closing businesses, it is slowing the spread of the virus. We still have a long way to go. This month is still going to be a rough month. We're going to be going through the epidemic this month and starting to come down. And then in May, we have hard decisions to make about how we try to transition back to work slowly um, through May and into June and slowly enough that we don't get a resurgence in the virus. That's going to be very precarious because we're not going to have in place what we really want to have while we're doing that. I don't think we're going to be anywhere near the testing capacity that we want to have as we're coming through this epidemic and want to start testing people on a much more, more widespread basis. And so we're going to be doing it a little bit blind. We're going to be doing it without the capacity to really be able to detect new spread in the community at the level that we're going to want to. Hopefully we have that for the fall. We have that testing capacity in place for the fall, but probably what we need is the capacity to test several million and maybe more people a week, at least three or four million people a week. You want to have very broad testing capacity and very liberal use of those tests. And I think businesses also want to think about how they can deploy tests at the place of work, maybe with shared services that businesses adopt um, to be able to test people when they come back to work and also while they're at work, if they have signs and symptoms of coronavirus, to make it easy for people to get
3: access to that kind of care. Dr. Gottlieb, the refrain of, of we don't have enough testing, we're not going to have enough testing. Why is it taking so long? us to ramp up on the testing aspect? Well, what we've d- done up to
8: date um, in terms of getting more testing into the market is we've got players into the market who weren't in the game. So we've got the clinical labs in like LabCorp and Quest. We got the academic labs into the game. And so we've got all those people now ramping up their testing. But now they're, they're going to be maxed out pretty soon. And so trying to get higher levels of testing from where we are don't just require us to get new people into the market but get more systems into the market. And that's going to be a harder slog. We actually have to expand the capacity, expand the platforms that are in the marketplace and try to bring new players into the market that traditionally haven't been in this market. So it was easier to go from 100,000 tests a week to a million tests a week than it's going to be to go from a million tests a week to 2 million tests a week or 3 million tests a week. Because now we have to do harder work of getting new entrants into the market and expanding platforms, basically building new machines. And that's a slower that's a slower ramp. Is,
3: is, is this where we would see the delay in the acceptance and the preparedness for the virus show up more acutely? In the lack of testing that we have at the current time and also the length of time, it is still taking some to get their results back.
8: Yeah, and that's a, that's a product of the fact that the platforms are overwhelmed, and we don't have high-throughput platforms in some cases, and we don't have the kind of platforms that give a rapid result at the point of care. Those are coming onto the market. The Abbott system, Cepheid's gene expert, Becton Dickinson has a system that I'm sure they're trying to bring to the market as well that's deployed in a lot of doctor's offices. Those are rapid tests that can be deployed at the point of care. Look, we, we've come a long way in the last month in terms of testing capacity. Um, the argument is that we should have been doing this back in January and February, and then we'd be in a different place right now. We'd have, we would have had broader testing capacity in, in early March, and we would be building from there. So we're building from where we probably should have been. Um, so we're a month behind, maybe more. We'll, we'll get there, I think. But I'm still concerned about what we're going to have in May and June. And I'm frankly still concerned about what we're going to have in September, because remember, we're going to come back, hopefully, The summer is a backstop. We start to lift these restrictions in May into June. We get back to some semblance of normal life in in July and August. And then we come back in September. Schools are back. Residential campuses are back. People are back in the workplace more. And that's going to be a real risky time of the year for us, that we could face the risk of outbreaks again. And we absolutely need the testing capacity in place
3: by that time. Or then we're going to probably be in much greater risk. If the president asked you tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, when is it realistic to reopen the economy? What would you tell him?
8: Well, look, we put out a metric where we said in a report that we put out on reopening the economy that you want to see sustained reductions in new cases for at least two weeks um, before you contemplate reopening um, the economy. Now, the question is, what is sustained reduction in new cases? It's probably a week or more of, you know, continued declines in new cases. And you wait another full two weeks because that's the, that's the length of time of one replication cycle. It's the in, in, replication cycle, it's the incubation period, if you will. So that puts you some point in May. I think we're, in May we're going to start to contemplate, do we lift the stay-at-home orders? Do we allow businesses to go back to work, certain businesses, but even place certain restrictions, like you can't have gatherings more than 10 or 50 people, um, certain businesses you know, need to remain closed longer, things that are purely entertainment that congregate people inside in large groups. So you're going to have a slow reintroduction. So I think in, in May and June, we're coming through this. In June, we start to look more opened up. And then in July and August, hopefully transmission breaks off with the summer. We hope there's a seasonal component here. And, you know, we're getting back to a semblance of normal activity uh, in the depth of the summer here in the United States. But then we'll have to see if it becomes epidemic in the southern hemisphere and how seasonal this virus is. And if it does, then there's going to be a real risk that it gets reintroduced here in the
3: fall. or wants to come back. Here we are talking about testing, getting back to work. I'm curious as to how worried you are about possible reinfections from people who are cured. I bring that up because there's an article today in Fortune magazine talking about patients in South Korea who are being reinfected. Is it possible to have a reactivated virus? Well, I don't know if they're getting reactivated
8: insofar as they never cleared the virus and it's now sort of resurging in their bodies. I think that it is possible to get reinfected. This is not like measles or chickenpox, where you get it once and you develop a lifelong immunity. Um, coronaviruses, and there's seven that circulated prior to this, cause the common cold. And we get reinfected with those coronaviruses all the time. So it's likely the case that the immunity here isn't enduring. It might last six months, maybe up to a year. Um, and then you can get reinfected. Now, the question is, do you have some cell, cell immunity that makes it so that the, when you get reinfected that second time, you don't have a severe course? And that's probably the case, but we don't know. That's just speculation. But it's likely a case that you're going to be able to get reinfected with this. And that's why the whole concept of herd immunity, letting this just infect the young people who seem to do better with this virus, and they'll, they'll all become immune. And then it's harder for this to spread through the population. And that's what Sweden is postulating. That's why that that theory I don't think is going to hold, because a very small percentage of the population is actually going to have been infected to this with this. And they're not going to have lifelong immunity. They're going to
3: be able to get reinfected. Good to know, doctor. Uh, we appreciate the time, as always. We'll see you soon. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us once again this evening. Thanks. This is CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is just getting started.
4: Up next, as the surge grows and the peak nears, what is it like from one doctor on the front lines? Plus, Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary on what we should be doing to save independent businesses. But before the break, images of the crisis, today in the United States.
3: Good to have you back with us. Here are the latest headlines now on the virus. Global cases now top 1.5 million, 450,000 here in the United States. U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson leaving intensive care. And nearly a third of American renters didn't pay rent this month. That according to an apartment industry group. Well, as you know, we've been meeting doctors on the front lines battling the coronavirus. Dr. Nicholas Hernandez had his own battle with coronavirus last month. He has now recovered and he is back at work helping patients through their own COVID-19 battles at the Plainview Hospital on Long Island in New York. Doctor, it is good to have you with us tonight. We are so glad that you are well, and it's incredible that you are back at work. The ordeal that you've gone through over the last few weeks, please describe that for us.
9: Thank you, um, and thanks for having me on. Um, Good evening, and uh, yeah, so um, on St. Patty's, actually, one of the patients just told me, you'll never forget St. Patty's. Um, I started some symptoms, usually when we go back to the hospital, you, you feel a little funny, but by Thursday I was having body aches and chills and called my boss. Cause we, at that point we still, you know, we only had one rule off floor. So when I got on the floor, um, you know, um, and I, that night I had some body aches, chills. I called my boss the next morning. Cause my attempt was a hundred point three. I didn't want to expose the ones that didn't have the virus. And he told me, go get tested. I got my results by Sunday. And about a week in, I still wasn't getting better. I was—I'm a trumpet player, you know. I felt like my lungs were strong enough that you know um, I should have gotten better, and my symptoms were just like a roller coaster ride—just getting worse, and I wasn't improving. Uh, but thankfully, finally, within 12 days, I, I finally was fever-free, and it was time to go back to work according to my employee health service.
3: It's remarkable, doctor. I think anybody would have understood if you wanted to stay home. For a while, and, and take care of yourself. What brought you back to the hospital?
9: Um, it's just knowing that I'm at home, and you know there are people out there that need the help. You know, I signed up to be a physician because I I wanted to, you know, help my 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 fellow humanity. And you know, um, I felt that at least the worst part of the illness was gone. I still have a cough. I still today have a cough occasionally but um i wasn't afraid anymore the moment i found out that i was positive i was like okay i have it yes i was scared for my family i was scared that i w- you know it was going to be hard for me to make it through it but you know with prayers and support of my family you know i, I we made it back and and then i was ready just to hit the ground running i was scared because i didn't know what how to go about treating the patients that they were currently you know what the guidelines were cuz it just changes every day every week but at the same time i have a great support system here in the community hospital where we all work together and, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of success now. You know, we have something called the code clap out, where we're seeing a lot of discharges. Whereas last week, it was nothing but rapid responses, code blues over and over again every hour. Um, We're seeing less and less than that. So it's, I applaud the American community because if everyone stays disciplined and does their part, um, hopefully we'll get out of this and, uh, you know, we'll do well.
3: What did you find when you went back to the hospital? Were there many more cases there than you had anticipated?
9: Yes, um, I only had four cases before I I was out sick, whereas when I walked in, I was already my full my full load was all Corona cases. Um, And we typically as a group of five physicians have anywhere from 50 to 60 patients a week um, on a daily basis, excuse me. Um, But uh, we were facing up to uh, 90 to 100 patients. So they were bringing um, community doctors that recently graduated back to kind of help us with the load Um, and that that was a good relief. But still, these patients were moderately to severely sick and they were in their second week of symptoms. So that's when you you have to be on top of their um, respiratory status. I had patients speaking a sentence to me and all of a sudden they could only say two, three words and I had to run on them, get ICU involved, and try to help them compensate um, so that they didn't end up intubated. And unfortunately, some of them did.
3: We're so appreciative for all that you are doing and that of your colleagues. We wish you well. We're glad you're healthy again.
9: Thank you, I appreciate it. Doctor, and we're just praying for everyone out there.
3: We sure are. Dr. Nicholas Hernandez joining yeah. us tonight. And there is much more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. The capital
10: markets should reflect what happens on the ground at companies by people. And right now it does
4: not. Is there a Wall Street disconnect? Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary weighs in. Coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil.
2: The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
6: As the bell goes, we are higher by 1.5% on the S&P
4: 500. Stocks rise as the S&P 500 caps its best week since 1974.
10: We're in a point right now where capital markets are still very much divorced from Main Street.
4: Wall Street's up, but Main Street's down. Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary on whether any of this makes sense. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, Scott Wapner. Welcome back. Markets
3: finishing off this shortened week with big gains. The Dow rising 285 points and a one and a half percent gain today capped off the S&P 500's best week since 1974. A look at some of the biggest winners in the S&P now show some really beaten down companies rebounding sharply this week. Take a look at that. Retailers cruise lines with very Big gains, in oil company there at the bottom up better than 60 percent as well. Billionaire investor Chamath Pali Hapatia blasting today the government's relief efforts. Here's what he told me earlier on the halftime report.
10: We're in a point right now where the capital markets are still very much divorced from Main Street. And at some point, we do need to tie these two things back together because this is how the United States is the most important vibrant economy in the world the capital markets should reflect what happens
3: on the ground at companies by people and right now it does not you keep saying propping up zombie companies are you are you arguing to let airlines for example fail yes why i mean ha- How does that make sense in the broader scheme of of the economy? Because it's not
10: because when you look at what it means, this is why I'm saying like this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy. Right. If anything, what happens is the people who have the pensions inside those companies, the employees of these companies end up owning more of the company. The people that get wiped out are the speculators that own the unsecured tranches of debt or the folks that own the equity. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. But the employees don't get wiped out. If you wanted to make us whole, you would basically take last year's W-2 for every single United States citizen and say, guys, I'm going to give you the monthly wages that you got last year until this thing is over. That's how you could make us whole. But by plugging the holes of balance sheets, you don't make us whole.
3: That was Chamath Palihaapitiya. Let's bring in now the chairman of O'Shares ETFs and a CNBC contributor, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin, it's good to see you again. A couple of things to unpack here. The first is this concept of markets being divorced from Main Street. Does Chamath have a point? We're coming off the best week in the stock market since 1974, at the same time when the unemployment data that's coming in is horrendous.
11: Um, No, he does not have a point. His concept is bankrupt and without merit. Capital markets are never divorced from what's actually happening in companies. That is the the nature of what capitalism is. It's volatile, it's nasty, and sometimes you have to get used to it. But what it's trying to do is discount the future. And right now, we're starting to see green tips, if you want to call them that. This whole idea of, of changing the system, it's not broken. Let's not try and fix it. And helicoptering free money to individuals, that's a really, really bad idea. And absolutely, no, I don't agree with that. We want to keep the DNA of, in businesses alive, so when we're out of this mess, they come back as fast as possible. Enterprise is what America is about creating jobs, solving problems, growing businesses, creating more jobs, solving problems, not helicoptering money to people sitting on sofas. What the hell is that? What a bad idea that is. You can only bring that idea up in a time of pandemic, and it's still a bad one.
3: Wait, 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 wait. You're suggesting that all of the people, whether they work in hotels or restaurants or casinos or other areas of the economy, shouldn't get any money from the government? To help them
11: in this period of incredible uncertainty and dislocation? I didn't say that. I want to give it to them the context of keeping them employed according to the PPP plan that we're trying to implement. Keep the DNA of the business that employs them intact, not divorce them from the business, not put them on unemployment. Keep the business intact. Give us 90 days. We, by the way, Scott, we need more than $350 billion. I need another $350 billion, And I only have 51 companies. I've got 51 applications out there trying to keep the businesses intact and everybody employed. That's what I want to do. Not divorce them from the enterprise. That's an incredibly bad idea. But that's already just, happened. Let this business fail. Let that business fail. Let, let's just not support any of this stuff. These businesses did not see a pandemic coming. I don't agree with him at all. I
3: I don't agree that we should let businesses fail, but businesses are hurting and many are closed and thus employees by the thousands or millions, in fact, have been laid off. They're without work. The numbers coming out of the unemployment benefits office is
11: horrific. I like the idea of saying, look, if a business has to suffer through ninety days of zero revenue and I have some of those on my books businesses that were doing really really well in a buoyant economy with really good policy just get stopped like they hit a brick wall because nobody's going to a mall anymore or nobody's going to a sports event or nobody's buying anything near a theater I get all that but we're gonna come out of this one day I'd rather keep the enterprises that were created that have a long history of success Intact. Instead of unemploying these people and fire them, give money to the businesses to let them keep the employees with their health care. Give me ninety days. Just give me ninety days. That's all I'm asking for. And by the way, I'm pushing back on landlords, saying, "Look, I'm going to try and get that PPP into every business I can, get that intact, keep you employed, and you'll be coming back to work hopefully in June or July." I don't know any better than that, either. Do you? There are but restaurants that.
3: There are restaurants, though, Kevin, they can't get 90 days worth of funding, perhaps, from from the government so that they can avoid laying off thousands of their employees.
11: Scott, not every company is going to make it, I grant you that. But our economy will come back and absorb them. We will find other enterprises being created right now as a result of what the new normal is going to be. And I don't know what that is. But I don't want to change the culture and the dynamic of capitalism. I don't want to let this opportunity bring in ideas that are foreign to the essence of what makes America great, the small business which is over half of our economy. Listen, we've got to keep those things alive and let the changes occur. I don't know what they're going to be. I don't know what the new is. I don't know if restaurants are going to have now six feet between diners. I don't know if there's a middle seat on JetBlue anymore. I don't know whether an airplane has to have some kind of hazmat air filtration system. It'll get solved. We'll work it out. But this idea that we're going to give people money, some income for doing nothing, is not the American way. And I'm against it. Let them be part of a business. That's all I'm saying. I don't understand
3: what, what you're saying, though, about the doing nothing. They're not doing, no, no, no- they're not doing do nothing. They're not doing nothing
11: by choice. No, I, no, no. What I'm saying is, look, if a business is under stress because it's got zero revenue, fund the company to then pay the employees so the DNA of that business remains intact until we get out of this mess. Does that include a restaurant in New York? Maybe it does until we find out what a new restaurant looks like afterwards. Maybe it's not densely packed in a basement somewhere. Maybe it's a different experience. Maybe it's a broader expanse. I just want the natural forces of capitalism kept intact. I don't want to say, look, everybody, here's a free check from the government. You're all fired from the company that hired you, from the company that was successful only nine weeks ago. I don't like that idea at all. I don't like ideas that change the essence of what creates businesses. My strategy here is to keep funding with PPP, and now we have a bigger package for larger companies. Keep that up for at least three months. That's all I want. Give me three months.
3: Kevin, we'll leave it there. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Kevin O'Leary Scott, joining us tonight. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back.
4: Next Tonight... Acclaimed chef and restaurant owner, Marcus Samuelson, on how he's keeping his business afloat and helping those in need. But before the break, images from around the world on the 102nd day of the coronavirus crisis. If you have a coronavirus story idea that you'd like us to look into, send an email to investigations at CNBC.com.
3: Welcome back. He's had to close 23 of his restaurants around the world. Now he's turned three of them into community food hubs. The acclaimed chef and co owner behind Red Rooster Harlem, Marcus Samuelson, joins us now. Marcus, it's good to have you on. Thank you so much for being here.
12: Thank you for having me. That was an epic heavyweight fight between Kevin and shamat man that That was a classic
3: <laughs> I, I'm, uh, which side do you come out on
12: well i think I think actually shamat is on the right side and, and kevin is, is you know Kevin is a nice guy and everything but at this moment he talks about his 61 companies you This is the moment to take that aside and say it's about people first right uh I live in Harlem. My restaurant is in Harlem. People are hurting, especially poor America. Right now, it's really about people first. Um, you know, I would love for my company to get even more help, sure, but it's more important that my people, my employees get help. So I would love for the government to help the people first uh, because what company, what rest, what is the restaurant scene going to look like in 30, 60, 90, 120 days? I'm not sure if Consumer Confidence is walking into a restaurant uh, until we have a vaccine. So we don't know what the new normal is. But one thing the government can easily do is send checks to hardworking people, the first responders, and people like that that really deserve it.
3: For sure. You have 36 restaurants. You've closed 23 I, of them. How have, you, yeah. how have you managed to keep the ones that are open open? Well, I mean, we
12: operated it in eight different countries. So it's different culture in Canada versus Bermuda versus Sweden versus England and so on. So it's a little bit different. But overall, it took me 25 years to build this up, and it took me nine days to shut it down, right? But we decided to do in the immediate of areas, Harlem, Overtown, Newark. We decided right away to turn into Community Kitchen and partner with Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen. And in just in two weeks, we served over 11,000 meals, 11,000 meals to first responders to, to my community. And, um, people are really needing this right now. People are hurting it and it's the poorest. It's the first responders that's going to need it because they're out here offering, I mean, really jeopardizing their lives uh, and their livelihoods right now. So for us, this is a big deal to be here. I didn't want to go anywhere my restaurant didn't want to go anywhere, we just turned it into community kitchen
3: instead. It's great work that you are doing, uh, certainly Jose Andres too, for all the work that that he's done. Have you been able at this point to think about the other side of this crisis, Marcus, and and think about what your restaurant empire is going to look like and what the new normal could be?
12: I mean, I don't even look at it as a restaurant empire. I don't even think about myself right now. For me, it's important that we get through this collectively together, that my staff, my crew, uh, the people that I hired, and, and restaurant workers in in this country, all 14 million of the restaurant workers that work in this country are taking care of. Because without the restaurant workers, I, I wouldn't be here, right? So I I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, always start something and be able to make a living. But for me, it's more important that my bartenders, my dishwashers, my, my line cooks are being taken care of.
3: You are a good man. I think we lost Marcus Samuelson, Uh, a good man with a big heart. That's for sure. We certainly wish him well. Uh, All of those restaurateurs around the country who are struggling tonight and thinking about their workers. Up next, an Oregon distillery is stepping up for its customers. We're back now in Portland, Oregon. Shine Distillery and grill owner John Potet is stepping up for his community in a big way, turning his restaurant into a hand sanitizer facility.
5: It's bittersweet so overwhelming, tears came through to my eyes. People telling me that I was part of their family for so many years. I have done their kids' cakes, kids that are now married and have their own children. Between the March and the end of June, I have anywhere from 30 to 40 cakes a week. And then March 12th, everything was canceled, so I refunded everybody. Unfortunately, those four months have to carry me through the slow time, which is July, August, and September. I decided to give up my job and give up my lease and uh, retire by the end of this month. The two days before all this happened, uh, I had just purchased all my, all my supplies for the next couple of months. So they're sitting there and I thought, what can I do with it? And so I came in yesterday and I baked up a storm and I'm making gigs for uh, some of the hospitals. It makes me feel good. You know, they they probably uh, would love to have a slice of cake. It's a quick pick-me-up.
3: That was the Shine Distillery uh, stepping it up in Portland. Uh, On day 102... Of the coronavirus pandemic, here are the latest headlines. OPEC and its allies have agreed in principle to cut oil production by 10 million barrels a day. Another 6 million people filing for unemployment benefits in the latest week. That is about 16 million in the past three weeks. The Dow gaining 12 percent this week and the S&P 500 having its best week since 1974. Go to CNBC.com for up to the minute information on the markets and the virus. And for all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Shark Tank's coming up next.